Matthew 24 is one of the most controversial and misunderstood passages in the New Testament. And for months, I have been trying to figure out how in the world am I supposed to teach this chapter on a Sunday morning in 35 minutes. (laughs) And I thought, well, you can't just like go for the first 17 verses and then stop and say, we'll see you next week and let's pick up right there. That's not going to work very well. How are we going to accomplish this? This is a very important chapter because anytime there's a disturbance in the world, anytime there's a problem, anytime there's an issue, this is the chapter everyone goes to. This is the reason why in Matthew 24 in verse 6 it reads, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars and see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And this is the reason why any time there is any kind of war or a hint of war, the religious people get excited because we run to this verse. Or if there's a famine or an earthquake or any kind of world event. And if you've been around the block long enough, back during the Persian War, this was the text, and it's the end. It's Armageddon, and now that we have war in the Middle East again, here we are again. It's the end. These are the signs. Is this going to be it? And so understanding Matthew 24 is really important because it is so widely used and so widely misused. So how am I supposed to do this? That is the big question. Here's how I'm going to do this. (laughs) So this morning, what I would like to do is essentially give you a framework for this chapter. Give you a big overview of here's what Jesus is doing. Here are the big ideas. Here's where he's talking about different things and why that matters to us as our big overview. Now, if you're disappointed that I'm not this morning going to talk about the abomination of desolation or the return of the Son of Man from the four winds and calling the angels, be here at 630 tonight. And I'm going to take my second run at it and go deeper and start talking about some of those pictures that are given in there. And then if that were not enough, I offer to you this Wednesday night at seven o'clock, come here with all of your questions of everything that I missed that you're like, hey, wait a minute. And I will go through that. And if you don't have any questions at all and you let me off the hook, we'll just keep going with our forgiveness study. But I will allow for this this Wednesday to be an opportunity for you Uh, because of the depths of this chapter and the misunderstandings of this chapter, that we would use that time in a profitable way that you can bring your questions and we can dive even deeper into the text. So in short, overview this morning. Come back tonight. We'll dig in deeper. Come back Wednesday. I'll answer all the questions I can possibly try to answer. I won't say I've got them all, that's for sure. But I'll do my best to answer your questions on Wednesday night in regards to that. All right, so let's get into our text Context is really, really important right here. It is easy to parachute into chapter 24 as if there are no other connections and nothing else has been going on. But you'll notice in verse 1 of Matthew 24, it says that now Jesus has left the temple. And that's important context because this reaches all the way back to Matthew chapter 21. We have been looking at these past few chapters where Jesus has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He has gone into the temple complex 
And remember, he has cleansed that temple, which has only caused all of the religious leaders there in Jerusalem to challenge Jesus and to challenge his authority. He spends the rest of Matthew 21, all of Matthew 22, and all of Matthew 23 in the temple complex teaching about the temple's destruction. In fact, if you remember the past couple of weeks, we've done the lessons Seven ways to be a hypocrite because what Jesus is doing is pronouncing woes on the city and the religious leaders for their hypocrisy and is pronouncing their imminent doom of what is going to happen as God is going to come in judgment. In fact, you see that chapter 23 rounds that out. Look at chapter 23 and verse 37. Chapter 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, I want you to see what Jesus does at the end of these three chapters of pronouncing doom and woes and parables, telling them about their rejection, is that Jesus is trying to show them that the time for judgment has come. The city and the temple are going to be destroyed. And verse 37 is powerful that Jesus says, I have been trying to rescue you. I have been like like a hen trying to bring in my brood, but you would have nothing to do with it. And these last three chapters have really exposed that because what you have seen them do is that they have rejected Jesus. They've rejected his signs. They have rejected his authority and they have rejected his teachings. Jesus has spent all of this time explaining to them that they have turned away from God and they still are not listening and instead are intent on Jesus' death. The stunning thing that Jesus says as it moves into chapter 24 is there in verse 38 when Jesus says, see your house is left to you desolate. Now, it's easy to run by that declaration and kind of go, what do you mean by that? Yeah, your house is left to you desolate. But remember, back in Matthew 21, Jesus has come into the temple and he says that this is my father's house and you have taken this house of prayer and turned it into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. And now then at the end of all of this, he then turns and says to them, your house, here he is in the temple complex as he says this, is desolate, it's empty. Which is a very powerful way to say God is not here. And now this would have reached back to Ezekiel chapter 10 when God left the temple that first time and the temple was left desolate. And for God to not be in the temple means that they are not in relationship with each other anymore. The whole point of the temple was God living with his people. And here is Jesus saying, 
He's not here with us. He is not in this temple. He is not in relationship to this city because you have broken the covenant. And it mirrors the picture of Ezekiel chapter 10 that God has left the temple. And by leaving the temple, that means it is ready for its destruction. In fact, you have that idea confirmed in verse 39 when he says, you're not going to see me again until You say he comes in the name of the Lord. I don't have time overview, but idea of you're either going to see me in salvation or see me in judgment. The time is ripe and the time is ready and the time is done. Now, that's what leads into chapter 24 that sometimes can be confusing. You'll notice in Matthew 24 and verse one, Jesus leaves the temple and they're going out of that complex in verse one. The disciples come and point out the buildings of the temple. Have you ever wondered why they do that? (laughs) It's not like this is the first time they've been there. They have to go there annually for all the various feasts in Jerusalem. It's not like that. Nor is it like it's Jesus' first time in Jerusalem. Whatever age he is at at this point, 30-some years old, he's been there 30-some times as doing the, the fulfilling of the law and going there. So this is nothing new to be like, oh, Jesus, I know you've never been to Jerusalem before. Don't you think this is really pretty? That's not what they're doing. I want you to think about if Jesus has just pronounced all these woes and doom upon the temple and says it is over, it is lights out, and God is not here. Well, I think you see the disciples doing here is being stunned by the fact that God is going to destroy this place. And Luke 21 carries that that same idea. Here is the beauty of what we have for God. Are you really saying that this is it and all this is going to be destroyed? That's the implication of their their discussion because notice what Jesus says in verse 2 of Matthew 24. You, You see all these things? I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another. They are stunned at the idea that judgment is about to fall on Jerusalem and on that temple. And so they say, but look at how beautiful this is. And Jesus says, that doesn't matter. And in fact, so devastating is the judgment that is coming That he says, there's not going to be a stone left on another. Don't have time, but it is interesting to note of the temple itself. That is true. (laughs) What is left in Jerusalem today are that wailing wall, that western wall, is only the retaining wall that held the dirt up upon which the temple sat. And Jesus said... It's going to be leveled. And that is what happened. Now, let me give you some of the framework. I want you to notice that in verse three, this continues to be the discussion. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? This is important. Let me just stop and I'm going to make you do some English work right now. When will these things be? What are the these things that the disciples are talking about as we've had this discussion go on? 
Uh, These things is not one stone left on another. They say, look at the beautiful buildings. Look at the temple. Look at what Herod is doing. It is absolutely glorious and beautiful. Historians write about how beautiful that temple complex was that Herod was restoring. Jesus says, there won't be a stone left sitting on top of it. Next thing the disciples say, when will these things be? I think it's a very important thing to know. Similarly, notice the rest of verse three. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And I want you to notice that you have a question about when, tell us when, and to tell us the signs, tell us when these things are going to be warming up so that we know that it's going to happen. There's really two important pictures that are being drawn out into this question. And I don't have time to to stray too far off of this, but I do want you to notice that scholars observe here in verse 3 that what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age is a singular question tied together. I found it interesting that our English tries to show that by not putting a comma there in most of the the translations and using the and of the end of the age that these two are tied together. And if you read Mark's account and Luke's account, you'll note that there are two questions listed there. And this is trying to drive at the same idea, but that's for tonight and Wednesday. Just putting that forward for you. What I want to do is now give you this framework is that as you look at this chapter, I want you to see that what Jesus does is he answers these questions in reverse order. You will notice in verse four, he starts to talk about the signs of his coming. Here's the two questions. When will these things be and what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And in reverse order, he starts saying, here are the signs that are going to precede these, the, the, the destruction of the temple. And so you'll notice this is the context of which, like verse 6 and verse 7, wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for it must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. You can go into the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is going to even show that we had some of these things even going on. History records a lot of the conflict going on within the Roman Empire as well as around. You can Google all that. I'll leave that, leave that for you to do that. But historically accurate in the first century, in those days, these events are happening. Jesus says in verse 8, those are just the beginning. Then more is going to happen is that you have people falling away and betraying one another. Verse 10, verse 11, false prophets, and you have lawlessness increasing and a call for endurance all the way through this process to the end in those first 14 verses. I want you to notice something that's particularly interesting is in verse 15, he says, and when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand parenthesis, come back tonight. I'll do that. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, notice verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So here's a question for you. If this text is talking about the final global end of the world, why would running to the hills help you in the slightest? If 
The signs of his coming and of the end of the age are the final total judgment. Then why would going to the mountains be of any use to you? Why would that be the instruction? That does not make any sense. Because we know in the final judgment, when Christ returns, that's the end. 1 Corinthians 15. It's over and done. So this must not be talking about that very idea you have in verse 17. Not to go back into the house, uh, those in the field, the woes that are pronounced there. I've got all that listed tonight. We'll talk about the details of that in, in, tonight's, in tonight's lesson. But sometimes what happens is, we are, but what about what you see in verses 29 through 31? Surely that can't be the temple and Jerusalem and all that. Listen to what it says. It says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken and they appear in heaven, the sign of the son of man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And I hope as you hear that, if you were in our Sunday morning class over the last year in Revelation, you go, I've heard that before. I know that language. That is not unique language. We have studied that. We have heard that. We know what that's talking about. But again, I'll dig into that tonight for you. What I want you to notice is these continue to still be the signs because look at verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, then you know that summer is near. So also... When you see all these things, what these things? Well, I would tell you from verse 4 all the way to verse 31. Here's all of these signs. When you see these things, then you know that he is near at the very gate. So he uses an analogy and he says, just like a fig tree putting out its leaves tells you that it's summer and fruit and all of that. When you see all of these signs, you know that this destruction is at the brink. It is about to happen. So he uses a parallel like that. And I want you to notice this very important key. Because if you fall asleep and get nothing else out of this, I want you to get verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away. Until all these things take place. You cannot read anything that we have just looked at from verse 4 to verse 35. And I know what you're saying, but verse 29, verse 30, verse 31 tonight. I know. But verse 34 is controlling this text. Verse 34, Jesus says. This generation, what generation? The one that's standing right there in the first century that Jesus is talking to those disciples. This generation will not pass away until all these things. What all these things? What have we been talking about? What was the question about? What is it all centered on? About this destruction that is going to happen. And so this is a very important statement that is made. This generation will not Uh, pass away until this has taken place. Therefore, any attempt to go into this chapter and to see things happening in the world right now and say that's what this was talking about is inaccurate. Because Jesus said, not some, but all of these things that he is describing will take place before that generation 
in the first century passes away. This is a very, very, very important framework to this chapter because this is the section where everyone goes and this is the verse that everyone misses because it doesn't sell a lot of books to say, well, this was talking about things that Jesus was dealing with in the first century. Wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and all of those events, be amazed by this, happen all the time in world history. They happen all the time. And none of them are pointing to a final second coming judgment. That's not what Jesus was doing here. But rather was talking about the signs that were leading up to not one stone being left upon another. We'll go into those details tonight. Let's continue the framework. There was another question. Verse 3. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So we just talked about from verse 4 to verse 35. Here are the signs. These are the warnings. This is so you know it's coming. But there was something else the disciples wanted to know. When will these things be? Let me remind you. When will what things be? What's our context? What are we been talking about? Not one stone left on another. And I want you to notice that Jesus answers that in verse 36. But concerning the day or the hour. Do you see now how Jesus is talking about the wind? He's, he, he, they want signs and wind. He goes, here's your signs. And then in verse 36, he says, now as to the wind, give me the day and the hour and the time. No one knows the day or the hour. Except the Father. Now, people are very troubled by verse 36. So let's talk about that a minute. Verse 36 says, Concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so this question comes up. How is it possible for Jesus not to know? This is a very troubling declaration. The day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven. And he goes, and not even me. Only the Father knows that. Does this indicate somehow that Jesus is not divine? Does this mean that Jesus is not God? Absolutely not. So you ask yourself, how could it be possible for no one to know when this is going to happen yet? And only the Father knows when this is going to happen. I submit to you that this answer, that God had not determined the day and the time yet. That happens a lot in scriptures. I don't have time, but when you see 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 16, it's really interesting where Paul is talking about the Jewish nation there. And he uses this phrase, they are filling their sins to the uttermost. And he, what he does is he uses sin like a picture, like a, a picture and he's like, Here's what's happening. They're just compounding their sins, compounding their sins. And at some point, this picture is going to be full and judgment's going to come. And this seems to be the idea that I believe Jesus is driving at here. Is that it's not that God has said, okay, I'm sick of them on this particular date. It's that whenever their sins reach to the uttermost, whenever that time is, whenever that determination is by the Father... That's when this is going to happen. 
To me, this is the only way to be able to maintain the idea of, of the divinity of Christ as well as the I don't know yet because it hasn't been set yet. That time is yet to come. And you will notice that's the essence of what he continues with in terms of the wind. In verse 36, day or the hour, no one knows. But here's what I do want you to know. Look at verses, verse 37. For as it were in the days of Noah, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. You ever thought about that phrase? Noah's been loading animals into this ark, right? And everybody else is going crazy Noah, eating, drinking, getting married, living life. Doing things normal. They're looking crazy. No, no, nothing's going to happen. I know. No, no. They're just living like normal. That's the illustration that's been given. Verse 39. But they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be with the coming of the son of man. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will, will be left. The parallel that is being given here in terms of, uh, of this picture is not a parallel of global judgment. You will notice it's a, it's a parallel of suddenness. All of a sudden, everybody's just going to think life is continuing on and going on and going on and going on. And he says, when this judgment falls, when not one stone is left upon another, it's going to be a big surprise to people. And so he gives them signs. But the question is, who's going to pay attention to those signs? Because that's what he warned them back in verse 15. When these signs are given, he tells them in verse 17, or actually verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Be aware and run. Don't go back into your house. When you see these armies coming, when you see this desolation appearing, you need to run, you need to run, you need to run. We'll talk about that more tonight. But I want you to see that framework that's given here. Signs of the destruction and when. First answer of signs. Lots of things are going to be happening. It's really amazing. From verse 4 to verse 35, all kinds of things are going to be happening. But don't be deceived. Then he says, day or the hour, no one knows. But it's going to be sudden when this judgment happens. Now, here's what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at. And then we'll come back tonight for some more of the details of chapter 24. I want you to notice what Jesus then gives as a teaching in regards to this. Notice in verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Verse 43. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming... He would have stayed awake and not let have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. One of the things that I think is particularly interesting to note about how God operates in judgments is that he is always calling for his people to be ready. In every single time when he is offering up a judgment, whether you go back into Israel's history with the Babylonian invasion or here in the first century with what would be the Roman invasion, or even if you look at passages about the final judgment and the second coming, it's the same picture. Who's going to be ready? Will you stay awake? 
Will you be prepared? Will you understand that judgment is ultimately coming because there is a point in time for judgment and no one knows when that will be? Now, here's the trick. You know how many people get on TV and write books and say they know when the second coming is going to be? Do you know how many religious groups go around saying we have identified the time in which the second coming is going to be and here's what it is? And I want you to know that over and over again, Jesus says, no one knows. No one knows that day, whether you are talking about a final judgment or whether you're even talking about a national judgment like he is speaking about in Matthew 24. You have God always saying you need to be awake. You need to be prepared. You need to be watching. Because unfortunately, what we have the tendency to think is. Well, judgment's never going to happen to us, right? I dare say every single nation in all of history said that. Every single nation thought we would exist forever. And here we are in our history books learning about all these great empires and great leaders. And wow, look at them and look at that empire. and Look at what they did. And they were in, in the east. And look at what they ran and how amazing that was. And look where they were. And we just mark it all up. And Alexander the Great, wow, that was really amazing. Look at the Greeks. And, the, and we go through all that. And then we sit here and go, and that'll never happen anymore, right? <laughs> every kingdom, every nation, every power thinks they're in charge and no one can topple them. And every power, kingdom, and nation has always been wrong. And that's why Jesus says, you stay awake. You need to watch out because you don't know when it is a time for that judgment to come. You never know when the sins of a nation have been filled to the brim. That God now finally says, here is the day and the hour and now it's time. We were studying this morning's class that the Lord is patient and long-suffering and faithful. And he doesn't want any to perish, as 2 Peter 3 says. He doesn't want to bring judgment, but eventually it has to happen. And that's why so many of Jesus' teachings and so much of what the apostles went around saying is, so you need to be prepared and you need to stay awake. And you need to watch out in terms of his coming. In fact, notice what he questions in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household to give to their food the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set, over, set him over all his possessions but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, a lot of that's tonight, but I want you to notice the question that's asked. Who's going to be the faithful and wise servant? That is found doing the master's will when he comes. That is a question that keeps coming up that God presents as well. Whether you are talking about a final judgment or whether you're talking about a national judgment. You always have God say, where are my faithful people? Where are my ones who are doing my will no matter the circumstances, no matter what's going on in the world? 
No matter how chaotic things may end up being. Who is going to be found faithful when he comes? And the problem that usually happens for us is we just forget that judgment's going to come suddenly. We just think we've definitely got one o'clock, right? We're all going to go to lunch and we're all going to be fine. And, and we don't operate in terms of this might be it. We don't operate in terms of the three different layers upon which that's possible. One, we don't even have control over if we're going to take the next breath. I could just keel over right here. I don't know. So it, it can happen suddenly. Am I ready? Two, how many times do judgments fall on nations? All the time in scriptures. And we don't know when that will happen. We know every nation eventually gets judged by God. And it is by God's grace that we continue on as a nation. At some point, our sins will fill up. And it'll be time for somebody else to rule the world. And we will be done. And so we don't know when that will be. And will he find us doing his will when that time happens? And number three. We don't know when final judgment is. In 30 seconds, the trumpet could sound and the dead be raised. And here we go. And so the question that God is always presenting is, are you ready to meet him now? Because usually what we like to think is just as in those days, We'll just continue eating and drinking and marrying and life will just always be the way it is. And we'll all just continue on and tomorrow will be like today and it'll always just be the same. And if you were a part of our group three years ago, I stood on my head in 2020 and I said, let this always be a reminder that tomorrow may not be like today. One day it's one way and that doesn't mean it'll be that way tomorrow. Who will the master find doing his will when he comes? And I would ask you to think about that question as we close. What will the Lord find us doing when he comes? Whether it is our time as an individual and our life passes, whether it is our time as a nation and our nation passes, or whether it's the final judgment and God's final return, what will he find us doing Would he find us too busy for him? Would he find us preoccupied with the cares of the world? Would he find us simply worried about the here and now and the physical and not laying up treasures for ourselves in heaven? What will he find when he finally makes the call and returns to receive his people? I'll ask one final question this way. Will he truly find us seeking the kingdom first or not? Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, you give so many pictures of judgment in your word. And I pray that it would remind us that our time here is short. And Lord, we quickly forget that we do not have all the time in the world nor control of it all. 
And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for how often we think that things will just continue on the way they were. Forgive us for thinking that we have time to be concerned about you and spiritual things in the future while we take care of our physical concerns now. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us more aware of your coming, more aware of your judgment, more aware of the short time that we have before you. Lord, we pray that we would redeem the time that has been given to us. Lord, help us to analyze our lives and consider that we are making the most of it as your servants. And Lord, I pray that you would help convict our hearts if we would not be found ready if you were to come at this very moment. Help us to consider if we are right with you, if we've made our lives right with you, if we have done what we needed to do to enjoy the rich blessings that you have offered to us. I pray, Lord, that we'd be honest in that. And Lord, that we would ultimately be ready for your final return. In Jesus' name, amen. I really do hope you'll come back tonight. There was no way, no way. Well, I mean, there was a way. You could stay here till two. I mean, that'd be a way. But I mean, there's no way to be able to do this all in one shot. Uh, and this would be a great opportunity for you to come back tonight and then look a little deeper at what Jesus is trying to teach. And again, how Jesus uses those pictures to teach us about how God operates even now and what we can ultimately expect. But for this morning, are you ready to meet God? If God were to come at 1136, would you be ready? Would you be excited if I said he's coming at 1136? Would you be like, let's go? Or would it be, oh, no. I hope you make yourself ready today. Turn away from sin. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Get right with God before it is ultimately too late. We would love to help you to do that. Talk to me. Talk to Dan. Talk to somebody next to you. Or you can come forward now as we stand and while we sing.